Well, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 139 this morning. It's often used when defending the right of an unborn child to be able to live. The wording that uh, Pastor Nate read in verses 13 through 16 especially is uh, a description of God's forming a child's life in the early stages in the womb. So from the time that you were born until the time that you take your last breath, God has been interested in you. He has been, as Romans 8.28 says, working all things together for good to those who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. He cares about you. And when we realize this involvement in our lives, we can learn to trust him. The title of the message this morning, God is worthy of our trust. Lord willing, we'll go through the, all the verses in this psalm, Psalm 139. The heading of the psalm reads, To the chief musician, a psalm of David. David was a skilled musician. He played his harp and washed the sheep and became very good at putting lines together that would uh, glorify his shepherd. He wrote many songs. This one he gave to the chief musician. The song can be divided equally into four sections with six verses in each of those sections. Each section focuses on a divine attribute of God and teaches us something about God. First of all, that God is omnipotent in verses 1 through 6. And then God is omnipresent in verses 7 through 12. In uh, 13 through 18, God is omnipotent. In the final six verses, God is just. So the more we learn about God and who he is and what he's like, the more we'll learn that we really can put our trust in him. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Isaiah 31, 1 says, Woe to them who go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots, because they are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. And so I'm encouraging you to look to the Lord Build your trust in him and not on any other strength that this life has to offer. Jesus Christ is worthy of our trust. First of all, because God knows everything. Verses 1 through 6. And when you think of that in the theological sense, you, yeah, I agree to that, I assent to that, God must know everything, after all, he's God. But put it into a personal context, God knows everything about you. That's a wonderful thought, and David, David words that. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsittings and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The first statement in verse 1 is really the theme of the entire psalm. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. The word for searched means you have dug something up. God knows everything about you. When you go into his courtroom, you will find every action, every motive, every thought has been tagged and entered as evidence against you. The Bible says in Luke 12, 2, there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. You have searched me and known me. He knows all of the good about you. He knows all of the bad about you. 
At first, you might say, yeah, I don't think I like where this is going. I don't like to think about God knowing all about me. There are things in my life that I'd rather keep a secret. I don't want anybody to know about. The difference comes when you trust Christ as your Savior. When God forgives you of your sin, then you'll realize he saw all of your sin and he forgave it. He knew all about you and yet he still loved you enough to send his son. In spite of your sinful heart, he took your place. He took your punishment. And if you've never invited him to come into your life and forgive your sin and save you, I hope you see that God in this psalm is the one whom you should run to and trust as your savior. It's an amazing thing that the more you trust God in your life, the more you invite him to keep showing what needs to be done so that you can change and be more like him. That's what David does. Look at the end of the psalm. David invites the Lord to keep searching his heart. Down in verse 23, he says it again. Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. So when you get to that place where you're trusting God on a day-to-day basis completely with everything in your life, you'll want him to keep showing you things that you need to change to become more like him. Like we, we talked about in the book of James in our Sunday morning study. We look in the mirror of God's word and we see something that's out of place and we ask him, Lord, change me. I want to look more like you. I want to look less like myself. David goes on to list specific things that God knows about him. Verses 2 to 4, he knows your actions, my down-sitting and mine uprising. Some of you have smart watches, and you sit down in church, and all of a sudden it'll tell you, get up and move. Please don't. <laughs> but they tell you, you've been sitting too long, or it keeps a record of how many steps that you've taken. Your phones do that, too. You know, God knew all about those details before you even bought that watch or that phone. <laughs> he knows when you sit down, when you stand up. He knows your times of work, your times of rest. He knows every move you make and everything you do. He knows all the variables of what would have happened if you had done that, but you didn't. You say, is that true? Yeah. In Matthew eleven twenty one, Jesus said to the people in the towns where he grew up, if the mighty works had been done in Chorazin and Bethsaida, those were ancient Canaanite and Phoenicia cities uh, further north of Israel, if those works here that have been done here had been done there, they would, have been, they would have repented. He knows your thoughts. He knows why you do what you do, your motives, not just your actions, but your thoughts. David writes, thou understandest my thoughts, my thought afar off. It's probably referring to your thoughts that are far off, not that God is distant. This man um, in, in Matthew 9, 33 and 4, uh, Jesus knew the thoughts of the religious crowd that was there. Uh, behold, certain of the scribes and Pharisees said within themselves, this man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? He knows your actions, he knows your thoughts, he knows your ways, where you go. Verse 3, thou compassest my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. God could recreate the steps that you have taken all the way through your life. In fact, he knew that even before you were born. He knows your words, what you say. Verse 4, for there is not a word in my tongue, but Lord, 
But lo, O Lord, thou knowest it all together. He knows every word that your tongue and your lips and your teeth have ever formed, ever spoken. Those words that you utter under your breath, he knows. Those things that you say when no one else is around to hear them, he knows. Those words that you type into the search engine and spend all day typing and texting online, he knows those words. He knows all your words. How does David conclude, verses 5 and 6? Thou hast beset me behind and before, thou hast laid thine hand upon me. Leupold says, Wherever he may happen to turn, behind him or before, God has closed him in. Wherever he turns, he is in God's power. And so he stops in verse 6. And he says, it's too wonderful for me, this knowledge that God has of me. It's too high. I can't attain it. His knowledge of David was more than he could grasp. It was was beyond his comprehension. Paul wrote the same thing, this wonder of God's ways in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. When you stop to consider all the details that God knows about you, again, you might not like that thought. That might cause some concern in your heart. He knows how sinful I am. And you can respond in any theological study of Scripture. There is always a response of the human heart. And so as you think about God's omniscience, how will you respond? Will you respond and say, uh, I, I, don't, I, re- I reject the fact that God knows about me. I don't want to be accountable to him. Or will you respond by admitting your sin, trusting Christ's payment on the cross to remove that sin from your record? And when you trust him as Savior, when you become his child, and that full knowledge that God has about you, All of a sudden, that's something you appreciate. You come to trust instead of something you fear. In Matthew 10, Jesus is telling about seeing the sparrows fall to the ground. And he concludes with the statement, Ye are of more value than many sparrows. The more you realize God knows everything, the more you'll begin to trust him. God knows everything. Secondly, God is everywhere. Verses 7 through 12, is omnipresent. And again, in a personal nature, God is always with you. Not just a theological, yes, he's everywhere, he's ubiquitous, everywhere you go, God is there. He is with you wherever you go. David asked in verse 7, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? Now he wasn't asking that because he was, he was wanting to get away from God. He wants to show that this concept that No matter where I am, God is going to be there. There are two thoughts as we consider this truth. First of all, you can't escape his presence when you're trying to hide from him. When God asked Adam in the garden after the sin, where art thou? God knew exactly where he was. He wanted Adam to know that he knew where he was spiritually. You can't hide from God. I know of a man who excused his immoral lifestyle by saying, if you didn't see it, it didn't happen. Maybe you know that same person who said it. The truth is, if it happened, God saw it. 
Second thought that we take away from this truth, there may be times when you don't think anybody knows what you're going through. You say, I haven't told anybody. I'm just kind of bearing that. And I, I, I'm almost afraid to share it with anybody. You feel like you're all alone. But God is there. He's still with you. It's a wonderful truth in Hebrews 13.5. It's taken from Deuteronomy 31.6. It's that simple phrase, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Isn't that a precious promise? God is there. He is with you. And the answer that David realizes in verses 8 through 12, that God's presence is not limited by, by vertical distances like height and depth. If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Now, he's not talking about heaven and hell as those eternal destinies, but he's comparing the distance between two extremes to show that God is everywhere. His presence isn't limited by horizontal distances, east to west. He says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, the wings of the morning refer to the, the sun's rays that streak across the sky. They're always going from east to west, by the way. The uttermost part of the sea, if you're traveling on those morning rays to the west from Jerusalem, you'll fly over the Mediterranean Sea and out into the Atlantic Ocean. David is saying, if I could somehow take a chariot that would, would, would travel at the speed of light, I still can't escape God. Even there, verse 10, shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. And we know God is a spirit, John 4.24. And so these are expressions that give God attributes of, of, of a man, anthropomorphic expressions. So he, David does this to show God's kindness, that he has hands. One hand is guiding him. The other hand is holding or protecting him. What trust we can place in that kind attentiveness of our God on a personal basis. He's with you. He's everywhere. His presence isn't hindered by darkness or light. Verses 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. This is a hard concept for us to understand. Ever since we've been little children, we've been afraid of the dark, haven't we? We seem to always have a fear. We can't see what dangers might be there. Did someone move the furniture when I was away from home? I've told the story before how my mom told my sister, who was afraid of the dark, to, when she went into the basement, that the Lord was with her. And she said, I know, but I want someone with skin on. Uh, God is with us, Okay. There is no fear of darkness when he's there. For the sinner, there's a false hope that darkness can hide us from God. I'm going to hide in this darkness. God won't see me. Look at how God views darkness. The night shall be light about me. Night shineth as the day. Darkness and light both alike to thee. The military has developed a way to see at night. Night vision goggles enhance light 10,000 times and they produce a green image that can be the, of, of the actual object. And the soldier who has those night vision goggles is said to own the night. There's one drawback. They don't work in complete darkness. So another system of seeing was created, one that doesn't need any ambient light, and that's infrared imaging. 
and that system shows the thermal heat of an object. You know, when I think about all those things, God's imaging system is so much greater than any of man's more accurate. The night shineth as the day. Darkness and light are both alike to him. His presence is limited by distance. His presence isn't limited by darkness or light. He's everywhere present. He's always with you to help. We come now to the third. God is omnipotent. God can do anything. And again, in a personal level, he is able to do more than we could ever ask or think. He can work on your behalf. There are a lot of verses in the Bible that demonstrate the power of God. Romans 1.20, we're told that his eternal power and Godhead are clearly seen in creation. The power of God is obvious when Jesus was doing miracles in the Gospels. But here, David illustrates God's power as he forms a baby in the womb. And David considers his own birth. And he gives God all the credit for that and all the praise. Verse 13 starts, thou hast possessed my reins. It's kind of an interesting phrase, especially when we try to think of what that means. The idea of God possessing means that he owns something. He owns it because he created it. Life belongs to God because he is the creator the argument that abortion is a choice of a mother or father is a denial that God is the one who gives life. He is the creator. Taking a life is taking something that belongs to him. He's possessed my reins. He owns life. David said, you've possessed or created my reins. Now you might say, what is that? He's saying my innermost being. Now the Hebrew word for reins is the word kidney. And that sounds strange to us because we, when we send Valentine's Day cards, we send them with hearts and not kidneys. Okay? In those days that David is writing, the animal was processed for meat, and the last organ that would be reached in that processing were the kidneys. And so that was considered the innermost part. Leupold writes, the reins are the most deep-seated of all the organs, and it's obviously referred to whose activity cannot be detected as the heart can by its throbbing. And so David says, you've possessed me to my inner being. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb, 13b. The word covered here means woven together. It's something like when a person is putting the threads together for a tapestry. What a perfect description of how the body is formed in the mother's womb. Job wrote in Job 10.11, Thou hast clothed me with skin and flesh and hast fenced me with bones and sinews. When you think about how a, a life is formed, one of, the, one of the details that I was looking at this week is that at 12 weeks, the fingernails are being created. Verse 14 is an interlude of praise. The wonder... And the praise for what God is doing as David considers his own birth. He says, I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works and that my soul knoweth right well. Fearfully means that, that consideration causes reverence, respect. Wonderfully, it, it passes our understanding. We're amazed at what God does. And then he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made another small word but it indicates that God is the maker 
He is the creator. Psalm 100, verse 3, Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. What a, what a concept for our modern humanistic society to, to grasp. We're not self-made people. God made us. He's the creator. Back in 15, verse, a, uh, verse 15, part A, My substance was not hid from thee. Here the word substance is bones. It can be either the, the early skeletal structure that's being created or uh, the idea of potential strength, capabilities. When I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest part of the earth, wrought, the same word is covered in verse 13, woven together as a tapestry. The, the, the place of this weaving, in secret, that's in the, in the mother's womb. In the lowest part of the earth, perhaps this is a reference to the dust of the earth itself, referring to man's original creation out of the dust of the ground. Verse 16, thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Here, substance is a different word than we saw in verse 15a. There it was the skeleton or potential strength. Here it's, it's actually the, the literal word for the embryo. Notice the description of what's taking place. Yet unperfect. The verb there means to roll. And so unperfect is, is rolled up in this ball. All my members written in a book when in continuance or in days were fashioned. God knew what color your eyes were going to be before you had all those details before you were formed. They were in his book. When as yet there was none of them. <laughs> what an incredible description of God's design for you and his concern for you and his interest and love for you. David's response to that creative, powerful work. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. More praise is added to that interlude of praise from verse 14. Now he praises God for his thoughts to him. There are four things about those thoughts. They are precious thoughts. They're of great value to David and should be to us, that God thinks on us. They're personal thoughts. Thy thoughts unto me. Each one of us can say that. God thinks about you. He knows you. They're innumerable thoughts. How great is the sum of them. More in number than the sand. They're continual thoughts. When I awake, I'm still with thee. It doesn't matter if you're asleep, if you're awake. God is still having these thoughts about you. God's power is evident in these six verses. Not only was he able to form you, that very activity shows he's concerned for you. You're not someone who just happened to evolve by some random chance events. God made you. You're precious to him. And again, this theme, you can trust him. Last, verses 19 through 24, God is always righteous. He's just. He'll never make a mistake. He's always right. 
It starts with the judgment on the wicked enemies in verses 19 through 22. And as we've been talking about this on Sunday nights where Babylon is destroyed and God's judgment finally falls on mankind because of our rebellious sin, here God punishes his enemies. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men, for they seek against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. We know that God is just in punishing wickedness, punishing his enemies. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked. And because of that, David said, I want to be as far away from those wicked men as possible. He says, depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men, or ye men who kill murderers. Why? Because they speak against thee wickedly. They're God's enemies. They take his name in vain. Now, David is not said, he's talking about his own personal enemies. He's talking about God's enemies. And there's a big difference here. How does, God, uh, how does David respond to the wicked? Hatred, because they hate God. Grief, because they rise up against God. Now, we, we love them as God loved them. He sent his son to die for all mankind. And yet this wickedness will one day bring his wrath, bring punishment. And then we get to that, those last two verses where David is requesting God to continue digging things up on him. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Keep searching. Keep uncovering things in my life. Why? I want to know them. Why? So that I can make them right. I want to be aware of all that you know about me so that I can agree with you and ask you to change me to be more in your image. Try me and know my thoughts, my doubts, my opinions. See if there be any wicked way. Wicked is literally a way of pain. That's the pain that I suffer because of my own wrong choices, my own sin. And then he says, lead me in the way everlasting. Forever dwelling with the one who is that intimately concerned and caring for you all the way through your life. To be with him forever and forever. Lead me in the way everlasting. You can trust God because he knows all about you. You can trust God because he's always with you. You can trust God because he made you. He's omnipotent. You can trust God because he's always just. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. The thought of God knowing about you scares you. Let it scare you to come to him. Run to him. Flee to Christ Accept him as your savior. Have your sins forgiven. Know your home will be in, in heaven with him for eternity. Maybe you have trusted Christ as your savior sometime in the past, but when it comes to trusting him on a daily basis, when it comes to trusting him with that news that you just got or with what might be tomorrow, you have a difficult time. May God help us to realize who he is and how he loves us, and how he desires to work on our behalf and change us into his image, ask him to cleanse you. Trust him to make those changes in your life for his glory. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture. There's so many 
lessons we can learn about you, but I pray that we'll walk away realizing the most important lesson is that you're, you're intimately involved in every detail of our lives. You love us. You care for us. You want what's best for us, and that best is when we submit to you. And I pray that you would help us in the closing moments of this service to consider inviting you to search us and try us and see if there is any wicked way in us that needs to be changed and lead us in that way everlasting. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.